if you were listening to the past episode and you said, gee, I want to hear Beth Ann's April Fool's <laughs> experience. Well, well, you're well, you're in the right place. Let me just tell you. So Siri is trying to listen to you. <sighs> it always fucking is. Does it all the time. Okay, there we go. So let me back up this story and let's talk a little bit about the theme of my life, <laughs> if you will. Every year, I prep on April 1st, and I tell myself, don't believe anything you see, read, or hear. And do I learn? (laughs) No. I have been the subject of so many pranks in my life, which, to be fair, is earned, if I'm going (laughs) to believe it, on April Fool's. Every year, I fall for it. And this year was like no other. Where I get a text from my brother. He lives in New York. Uh, and my dad, pretty much all my family still lives in New York. And he sends me a text and he says, did you hear about dad? So immediately, you know, I'm calling. Like, and I was like, is he okay? Is he sick? He's like, no, he's not sick. But he may have gotten another woman pregnant. <laughs> and I was like, excuse me? Like, Josh saw he had died. Like, that's how, like, upset I was. I was like, are you fucking kidding me? And then he's like, April Fool's, ha, ha, ha. And I was like, fuck you. I hang up on him. <laughs> <laughs> and he sent a text, like, don't be mad. I wasn't mad. It was just so good. I was that, pissed. That is really good. I was pissed I fell for it. And I said, you know what? I am not going to be the victim again. <laughs> I am sick of years where I am the victim. And I said, I will be the victor. <laughs> so I call my mother. A little bit of context. My brother just moved to New York. And I call my mom. And I'm like, have you talked to Jonathan recently? And she goes, no, I talked to him the other day while I was up. Well, he's thinking about moving to California. And my mom's like, uh, uh, let me call your brother. <laughs> so she calls him. <laughs> and then and then like she texts me. He's like, good one, blah, blah, blah. And then I'm like, I need to get to my dad next. So then I think of the, uh, the next one for my dad. And I'm like, the story is he's going to join the army and he's moving to Germany. <laughs> and so I call my dad. And I was like, did you, did you talk to Jonathan recently? And I, I, he's like, no. And I'm like, well, he's, he's thinking about joining the army and he might get deployed to Germany. And he goes, that's so funny because your brother just texted me and said you and Josh were getting a divorce. <laughs> <laughs> so it was just me and my brother racing. Your parents were just caught in the middle. Like, what the fuck is happening? They, they were just collateral. Okay. <laughs> my parents, it really, I didn't necessarily want to prank my family, but if that was the means... To get back on my brother, I was going to have to do it. You know, sacrifices in war need to be made. John started it. (laughs) So, and then, of course, we found out our podcast, like we were talking, got uh, recognized by Apple Podcasts on Twitter. On April Fool's Day. When you first texted to me, I'm like, nope, I've already been fooled today. And then I went to the tweet and I was like, no, that's real. This is real. (laughs) So that was my, my April Fool's Day. It was very lively. Uh, and other than that, because I know you have 15 fucking pages to read through, um, I'm Beth Ann. And I'm Leah. And this is She Will Rock You. Where did they get in a dub in a CBS executive meeting? No. Bitch, don't touch my thermostat. <laughs> the ghost be like, hold up, before I haunt you, let me turn down the thermostat. Who is this band? We're on page one, guys. <laughs> this is She Will Rock You. Yeah, we're just going to cut to the chase, because this is going to be a long one. Um, I got my blankie. I got my iced iced coffee. coffee. Mia is is all settled in with us. She's sharing the blanket with me. 
So today we were talking about Guns N' Roses, which is one that I've put off for a long time because, as as I've mentioned in other episodes, Axl Rose is a piece of shit. Even my neighbor next door says he's a piece of he shit. He is. Um, I mean, is it his fault, question mark? Kind of. But we'll see that there were some things that happened in his early life that... You know, people didn't go to therapy in the 80s. Maybe Listen, if he had gone to therapy, it would have been avoided. from Wicked, who had a hard childhood, could rise up, Axel has no excuse. Yeah, well, uh, so we're, we're finally talking about it. Um, this is another installment of how the fuck are these guys still alive? <laughs> I, I don't, love these installments. I genuinely don't know. I really don't know. If you, I've read Slash's biography and then... I don't know if it's Axel's biography. It's been a while since I've read it. Axel's autobiography or if it's a book that someone like kind of ghost wrote, co-wrote with him. Yeah. They should not be alive. There's no way they should be alive. Um, of the two, if you're looking for further reading, Slash's autobiography is the better book. It just, it's a better read, better edited. I have great. this pre, you know, before we get into this, I just have a feeling Slash is just chilling. He's just chilling. He's just vibing. Okay, so I am correct in that. Cause Slash, is, Slash is my hero. I feel like Slash is just looking around the band and being like, all right. He's just like, I'm going to sit here with my top hat and pull yeah. it down. <laughs> my glasses and play guitar. Um, so let it, let us meet the crew. We're going to start with Slash. There's two, obviously two heavy hitters in this band, Slash and Axel. So Saul Hudson, later known as Slash, was born in Hampstead, London. On July 23rd, 1965, he was raised in a small town uh, in Stoke-on-Trent until the age of six when he and his mother moved to L.A. His mother, Ola Hudson, was an African-American fashion designer and she kind of got like a bigger opportunity in the States. Mm-hmm. So she said, pack it up, son, we're moving. There, she was the one of the premier costume designers for clients, including David Bowie. Oh, who like she dated for a time. Good for her. Slash has memories of David Bowie just like chilling on his couch as a kid. That's pretty cool. Isn't that wild? She also did costumes for Ringo Starr and Janis Joplin. His father, Anthony, is a white English artist who created album covers for musicians such as Neil Young and Joni Mitchell, which brings up the important realization that Slash may be a bit of a Nepo baby. <laughs> <laughs> he definitely had more connections than most people. Uh, a discussion for later. That we have ever covered. His parents ultimately did separate in 1974, in which he became a self-described problem child. He chose to live with his mother, but she was doing her own thing. She was very much... I don't want to say she didn't want to be a mom, but she cared about her career a little yeah. more than she cared about she her child busy. yeah and so he took that personally and would act up and so she would send him to live with his grandma she'd also to, he'd have to go live with his grandma when she traveled for work because she followed david bowie around and all these crazy artists he did sometimes get to come with her to work though and would m- meet you know movie stars and big name musicians and it was actually actor seymour castle who gave him the name slash because he was always in a hurry zipping from one thing to another oh that's cute in 1979 slash decided to form a band with his friend steven adler the band never actually happened the two just were like let's make a band and then nothing 
nothing happened. But it did spark Slash to pick up an instrument. And when they were planning this band, he and his friend, Steven, Steven was like, well, I'm clearly going to be the guitarist, so you have to learn how to play bass. <laughs> so Slash goes to approximately one bass lesson and was like, nah, fuck it, I'm learning guitar. <laughs> Um, and his teacher at his music teacher, Robert Wollen at Fairfax Middle School, taught him. No, sorry. He decided to make this switch from basic guitar after hearing his music teacher at his middle school play Brown Sugar by the Rolling Stones and was like, fuck yeah, I want to do that. <laughs> Mia's she, snoring very loudly. She, she, she does snore. <coughs> she also, if you notice, she always sleeps with a smile. She does. On her face. Uh, another influencing aspect of his guitar is this same teacher who sounds like the coolest fucking teacher ever. He would just, in class, just like whip out Led Zeppelin and Cream guitar solos nice. for his students. But, like, I guess was they're changing classes or whatever. And he said, Slash said, when I heard him do that, I said, that is what I would like to do. So his grandmother bought him a one string flamenco guitar. <laughs> And he started taking classes with this middle school music teacher. And he learned how to, his first like success feeling was when he learned how to play the guitar solo from Come Dancing by Jeff Beck, who is Slash's greatest influence. And he said it was fucking awesome. And he just wanted to ride that high forever. In addition to learning guitar at this age, Slash was a BMX rider, a championship BMX rider, I might add. I love that. I love that for him. <laughs> Fun fact. Um, but he kind of had to put the bike aside because he started to just devote his entire presence and being to playing guitar and would practice 12 or more hours a day. He went to Beverly Hills High School and was a contemporary of Lenny Kravitz. Hmm. Just the two of them I just roaming the halls of the same high school, being bros. In 1981, he joined his first band. It was called Titus Sloan. T-I-D-U-S. Dumb name. That didn't last very long. In 1983, he formed the band Road Crew, which is named after a Motorhead song, with Steven Adler, who's the one who wanted to play guitar in the first place. And by this point, Steven learned to play drums, so it all worked out. Oh, that's good. They placed an ad in a newspaper, as one does, looking for a bassist. <laughs> <laughs> that's where greatness is born. It's how you get your, your lifelong best friends. And they got a response from Duff McKagan, who clearly is going to stay around for a while. And they auditioned like 300 singers, like a shit ton of singers uh -huh. for like two years and could never find one. Sorry, not two years. It was for a whole year. They went through a whole year of auditions, could not find a singer. So Slash said, fuck it. We're not a band anymore because <laughs> we can't find a singer. And he did not like how Steven Adler was very mad towards the whole band i mean this your first lesson should have been when the man did not follow through with his first promise to make a band with you right the second one's not going to work out either so they kind of fired adler but he kept duff around because duff had good good work ethic um they do keep steven adler for a hot more second while they join a local band called hollywood rose and this hollywood rose band has a good singer his name is axel rose it also has another guitarist. His name is Izzy Stradlin. Um, but he do, they don't. This band Hollywood Rose hasn't stayed around very long, and so Slash ends up leaving for another band called Black Sheep, and actually auditioned for Poison for a little bit. Oh no way! 
Um, so let us pause on, on the Slash timeline and jump over to Axel's timeline. Axel was born William Bruce Rose Jr. in Lafayette, Indiana. And he's the oldest child of Sharon Elizabeth, who was then 16 years old and still in high school, and William Bruce Rose, who was then 20 years old. Mm. Red flag, red flag. His father was described as a troubled and charismatic local delinquent, and the pregnancy was unplanned, obviously. His parents separated when Rose was about two years old, and his father... This is where I forgot to mention the trigger warnings. Let me scroll up for a second. (laughs) So this story contains sexual assault, child abuse, drugs, alcohol, death, and racism. So just take this with a grain of salt. So back to Axel. His parents split at the age of two. His father abducts him, like kidnaps him from his mother, molests him, and then (gasps) dumps him back and leaves. Holy shit. Never sees him again. Or maybe he does. I don't remember. Um, so his mom was like, yeah, let's not associate ourselves with this man at all. Yeah. She ends up remarrying a man named Stephen Bailey, changes her son's name to William Bruce Bailey so that they don't have to do anything to do with this Rose man anymore. They go on to have a semi-normal grow. I'm going to say semi-normal. There are some issues, but like Stephen and his mother remain married. They have two siblings. Um, they're two siblings for Axel together, so he has two half-siblings, a sister named Amy and a brother, Stuart. And I say semi-normal because Stephen Bailey was also extremely abusive and beat all three children okay. very regularly. Um, but remember, Axel's parents split when he was two. He remembers nothing about his biological father. I'm glad. Until the age of tw- 17, he thought that Bailey was his natural father. At the age of 17, his biological father is murdered. He doesn't find out yet. He finds out very soon, though. Growing up in the Bailey household, Axel was kind of forced to be super religious. His family attended a Pentecostal church, and he was required to go to three to eight church services a week. Holy crap. And even taught Sunday school, which is just so funny to me. But I would love to be in an Axel Road Sunday right? school service. That, that while an idiot, I would enjoy watching. Yes. That. When reflecting on his oppressive upbringing, he'd say, we'd have televisions one week, and then my stepdad would throw them out because they were satanic. I wasn't allowed to listen to music. Women were evil. Everything was evil. So you can imagine yeah. the trauma that this child yeah, was well, forced. It. Also, it sounds like uh, his stepdad clearly had some kind of unchecked mental illness, but that's... Yeah. That's another story. So what do you do when you're growing up in a super repressive religious out al- religious household? You turn to music, even if that music is church music. He sang in the church choir from age five to when he ultimately leaves home. He performed at church services, and sometimes he would do so with his brother and sister under the name the Bailey Trio. At his high school, he participated in the school chorus and studied piano. He's a second baritone. But he d- began developing different voices during choir p- practice to confuse his teacher. <laughs> <laughs> I was about to say, he doesn't sound like a baritone. No, he just could He could sing in like whatever voice he put on, which is crazy. Um, he eventually would also form a high school band with one of his friends, um, who at the time was going by Jeff Isbell, but is now known as Izzy Stradlin. So, like I mentioned, at the age of 17, he finds out his dad is not his dad he's going through some insurance papers in his parents home office 
and he finds his birth certificate and the papers that say that he was readopted under his stepfather's name and was like Uh what the fuck so this obviously sent him into an identity crisis he learns that his father was a juvenile delinquent who's been murdered in another county in indiana um and so he just becomes a hellion he gets arrested more than 20 times in about the span of a year holy shit on charges such as public intoxication battery and served several jail terms up to like I think it adds up to about three months he spent in jail in this time. After Lafayette authorities threatened to charge him as a habitual criminal, he said, peace, and moved to L.A. in December of 1982. After moving to L.A., he decided to devote himself entirely to a band that he created called Axel, A-X-L. And then his friends were like, maybe that doesn't work as a band name, but you should call yourself Axel Rose. Yeah. And it just stuck. Uh, he finally legally changed his name to W. Axel Rose prior to signing a contract with Geffen Records in March 1986. Um, but backtracking a little bit, he once he arrived in L.A., he met a, made a friend with guitar Kevin Lawrence outside the Troubadour in West Hollywood and ended up joining his band Rapid Fire. Clearly that didn't pan out very, very long or very well. Um, they kind of split, and so Axel forms the band Hollywood Rose with Izzy Stradlin, who kind of followed Axel to L.A. in 1980, and completing this band was 16-year-old guitarist Chris Weber. In January 1984, Hollywood Rose recorded a five-song demo, which featured the tracks Anything Goes, Rocker, Shadow of Your Love, and Reckless Life. Uh, nothing really happened with this, but it does ultimately get released in 2004, uh, under a collection called The Roots of Guns N' Roses. For a short time, like I mentioned previously, Slash and Steven Adler joined, and then the band just didn't really go anywhere with that lineup. So Axel creates another band called L.A. Guns. So while they're struggling to make L.A. Guns become a thing, Axel's like, I gotta make money somehow. So he does you know, the typical starving artist thing and just rotates through jobs. One of these jobs is night manager at a Tower Records in Sunset Boulevard. But like the way they made they made the most money was Axel Rose and Iggy Stradlin participated in a smoking study at UCLA (laughs) where they made eight dollars an hour just smoking cigarettes. Dude, I too would get into smoking. I mean if you inflate that, that's it's equivalent, an hour. equivalent to $21 an hour. I called it. In 2021. <laughs> I called it. I, I too would take it up. Uh, so LA Guns is, went nowhere. Hollywood Rose is going nowhere. What's going on? In March of 1985, uh, somehow in this time, Axel has gotten a manager. His name's Raz. He's not really important to this whole overarching story. So Axel Rose is approached by his manager and he said, hey, I think you and Tracy Guns, who was in L.A. Guns, need to like get together and merge what was Hollywood Rose and what was what is L.A. Guns and make a new group. And so called L.A. Hollywood. (laughs) Yes. Hollywood L.A. The founding lineup consists of drummer Rob Gardner, bassist. I have old bike. Olay bike I don't know how he's clearly not around very long um and they go through like a bunch of really really rapid lineup changes and by June of that year so three months later they get the final lineup 
of Axl Rose on lead vocals, lead guitarist Slash, rhythm guitarist Izzy Stradlin, bassist Duff McKagan, and drummer Steven Adler. And this lineup debuts at the Troubadour and proceeded to play the LA club circuit and gets a very devoted fan following very, very fast. So this is March of 1985. By March of 1986, they have a major record label or a major record deal with Geffen Records. Wow, that's fast. One year. They just needed to assemble the right Avengers here. Yes. So the following December, they release a four-song EP called Live. There's like a bunch of symbols for an expletive, like a suicide. So it's it's live, question mark, exclamation point, asterisk, at sign, like a suicide. It's not actually bleeping out a word. I don't know. Geffen thought it was cool. They ended up releasing this on the Geffen imprint label, Uzi Suicide. And the whole point of this four song EP was just like, let's keep them busy while, or keep the public occupied while we release a full length album. Yeah. So that comes out in December 86. In July 87, they released their full length debut album, Appetite for Destruction. Now, you may think, well, that's the album that I know by uh, Guns N' Roses. That's like their their big name. Yes, that is the point of this story. <laughs> their, their debut album is fucking insane. We'll get there. <clears throat> the record received very high critical praise, but didn't really sell a lot during its first year. It, it sold maybe, maybe 500,000 copies. Yeah. Uh, fun fact about the album artwork, the original cover was designed by a guy named Robert Williams, and it depicted a surrealist scene in which a dagger-toothed monster is attacking a robot rapist. <laughs> you know, there's someone who needs to go to therapy and... Clearly! <laughs> explain. <laughs> so, why, so why did you draw that? <laughs> Clearly. Um, they had to change this because that was deemed too controversial. Uh, the band really fought for this original artwork, stating that it was, quote, a symbolic social statement with the robot representing the industrial system that's raping and polluting our environment. While true. While true. Is that the best art for your debut album? Probably not. So they ultimately revised the cover, which is the version that we all know today. It's got like that. It's based on a tattoo design um, by Bill White Jr., which had designed a tattoo that Axl Rose had just gotten the previous year and features each of the band's five school members on a cross. Much safer, much less offensive, yes. much more commercial friendly. Off of this album, the band's first single was It's So Easy, which came out on June 15th, 1987. Uh, in the UK only, for some reason, don't know why, it only peaked at number 84 on the UK single charts. And in the US... Oh, that's why. So they did It's, it's So Easy in the UK market. And in the US, they did Welcome to the Jungle as the first single, which had an accompanying music video. So like I mentioned, the, the for the first year, like it did okay. It's mm -hmm. not breaking any records, not charting really, really well. Um, and so Geffen Records founder David Geffen took this personally. And the record label was like, hey, you need to do something about this. And I took that personally. He took that personally. So he calls up MTV and is like, hey, I need you to do me a favor. Can you at least play this Walk in the Jungle video at some point? Like, you can put it into your after-hours rotation. Play it at midnight. I don't fucking care. Just do something to get this video on the TV. Yeah. So they play this video one time 
at a 4 a.m. slot on a Sunday. And the right people took notes because immediately all these heavy metal and hard rock fans start calling an MTV and they're like, bro, you got to play that music video again. Like that was badass. And soon it like works into a very, very regular rotation. Um, this song, they actually wrote it when they were in Seattle. Don't know why they were in Seattle, but it was about LA. The music video takes place in New York, whatever. It's confusing. Um, but according to Axel, the inspiration for the lyrics came from an encounter that he and a friend had with a homeless man while they were coming out of a bus into New York. Trying to scare off the young runaway kids, the man yelled at them, do you know where you are? You're in the jungle now, baby. You're going to die. And he's like, that's a great, great song opener right there. Thank you, sir. Thank you, homeless man. Uh, the second single off the album was Sweet Child of Mine. If you don't know this song, what rock have you been living under? It was a love song written about Axel's then-girlfriend, Erin Everly, which is the daughter of Don Everly of the Everly Brothers. Oh, no way. Yeah, I didn't know that. This song is the highest-charting Guns N' Roses so- song, and it's the band's only song to reach number one on the Billboard Hot 100. Huh. So it can only go downhill from here. That's right. <laughs> After the success of Sweet Child of Mine, um, they re-released Walk Into the Jungle as a single, don't know how you do that. I feel like you only get one shot. Charts were different back then. But this time, Welcome to the Jungle hit number seven because of that help from MTV airing the video. And they also at the same time have Paradise City and its video launching and that hits number five. A year after its release, Appetite for Destruction hit number one on the Billboard 200. And to date... Appetite for Destruction has sold over 30 million copies worldwide. Damn. 18 million were sold in the U.S. alone, making it the best-selling debut album of all time in the U.S., as well as the 11th best-selling album of all time in the U.S. (coughs) Obviously, they toured extensively for this debut album, and they set off on a 16-month-long Appetite for Destruction tour. In addition to headlining in Europe and the U.S., they also did opening slots for The Cult, Motley Crue, and Alice Cooper. Um, And then during the 1987 leg of the tour, Steven Adler actually broke his hand in a fight. And so he had to be replaced for eight shows because you can't... That seems about right. You can't drum with a broken hand by Cinderella's drummer, Fred Corey. Duff McKagan also missed several shows in 1988 to attend his own wedding... Which feels like very bad planning on the whole band's part. Yeah, 100%. <laughs> but whatever. Um, and the drummer, or the bassist from the cult, Kid Haggis Chaos, filled in. Um, Steven Adler also had to miss more shows because he went to rehab. So Don Henley of the Eagles filled in, which is just not a vibe match. Yeah, not at all. <laughs> I was like, that's that's like saying, let me put... like. Let's take this band and put the Teletubbies drummer in there. Kind of. Yeah. Like, Cinderella makes sense. The cult makes sense. The Eagles? <laughs> anyway. Uh, so, in November 1988, Guns N' Roses kind of release a, a filler album called Guns N' Roses Lies, or GNR Lies, uh, which I don't really know what the point of this is. It was, it was the four songs in their Live Like a Suicide EP with four new acoustic tracks, it really just kind of feels like a money grab from the record label, if I'm being honest, mm-hmm. to appease fans while they're oh, waiting sure. for their second 
album. Um, I think it was on this EP, GNR Lies, that they start to get a little bit of of a racism accusations because they have Oops. a s- song called One in a Million that is a cute... Well, it has... It blatantly has racist and homophobic lyrics. I'm not going to read you the lyrics. You can do that on your own. Google is free. But when Axel tried to defend this song, he dug himself into a hole because he said that just... That word, use your imagination, just means something annoying in your life. It doesn't always have to mean black. Holy shit. (laughs) Axel, you fucking idiot. Yeah. This is this is instance number one of Axel being an idiot. <laughs> He's just like, what? It just means annoying. What's a big big what? But wait, it gets worse. <laughs> Sorry. <coughs> I'm laughing at how much of an idiot this guy is. In response to the allegations of homophobia, Rose considered this is bad. Rose said he considered himself pro heterosexual, but is not against homosexuals doing what they want to do as long as it's not hurting anybody else and not forcing it upon him. Oh my he blamed this attitude on, quote, bad experiences with gay men, citing the attempted, an attempted rape in his late teens and the alleged molestation by his biological father. Again, maybe if he had gone to therapy... This wouldn't be a problem. The rest of his life would have gone a little bit differently. Um, however, he does... Eventually, he does realize that maybe this was a bad song to publish because years later, in 1992, he said, you know, maybe I shouldn't have written that. Uh, specifically in response to the Ensler, he said, I, at that time in my life, I was just pissed off about some people who were trying to rob me. I just wanted to insult those particular people. Oh. I don't want to support racism. Oh, my God. It's like he doesn't think. The man does not think. So this is this is strike number one against the public perception of Guns N' Roses. And this is in the 80s. This is not like, imagine that happened today. Right. They no. would be canceled so hard. Well, Kid Rock will probably attempt it don't soon, worry. so don't worry. He's going to go cover one in a million. He, he's gonna. He's <laughs> probably going to go sing it while he's shooting up some Bud Lights. Yes. So with the success of Appetite for Destruction and GNR Lies, Axl Rose, despite being an idiot, is um, like thrown into the ring of being one of Rock's most prominent frontmen. Because the man, despite being an idiot... He can sing. Like, he is one of the most vocally talented yeah. rock frontmen ever. Um, despite only having, like, one and a half albums out, they he appeared solo on the cover Rolling Stone in 19, August 1989. And his celebrity status was so high that they agreed to his, like, crazy, ridiculous demand that the interview would be written by one of his friends like he got to pick the photographer that took his picture and the interviewer who did his write-up like two-year celebrities don't get that privilege right but he did uh mtv anchorman kurt loader described axel rose as quote maybe the finest hard rock singer currently on the scene and certainly the most charismatic this is why he gets away with shit because he's a pretty boy yeah yeah men during a November 1987 show in Atlanta, Axl Rose assaulted multiple security guards and was held backstage by police. The band continued to, the, to perform the concert with a roadie performing lead vocals. <laughs> ah. 
That roadie is having the best day of can his you, fucking life. Can you imagine? You go to see Guns N' Roses. They're your favorite band. You wait all day in line <laughs> to be front row. And then some dude named, named Bob walks out. And he's just like, yeah, I know all these lyrics. Got to hear them every fucking yeah. night. <laughs> Takes a long drag on a cigarette. That's so funny, though. I cannot imagine going to a concert. <laughs> the lead singer just not showing up. Instance starts a long string of just crazy shit happening at their shows. During that same tour um, in August 1988, they had two separate shows in New York. Riots nearly broke out at both of them. Like it got real sketchy, real dicey. Um, and venue security must have just really not been existent existent in the late 80s because at the band's performance at the Monsters of Rock Fest Festival in Castle Donington, England in August of 1988, two fans were crushed to death. Oh, God. When the crowd of 107,000 people began slam dancing to It's So Easy. Axel had to halt the show several times before this even happened and be like, y'all need to calm the fuck down and just be chill. And they did not do that. So... He obviously, when two fans die at your show, you take that personally, and you make it your mission to never let that happen. to never let that happen again. Right. So he became like his thing is he will personally address disruptive fans, point them out to security, and like get them out of there. Well, that's nice. So, in nineteen ninety two, he said most performers would just go to a security person in the organization, and it would uh be done very quickly meanwhile i'll confront the song i'll stop the song and i'll say guess what you wasted your money you get to leave now was he one of the very first people doing that yes no one no one was doing this that's in the 80s. cool so yeah he's an idiot but he's a brave idiot so they continue to tour while they're working on this this new album uh they go to the u.s australia japan they're continuing to do like bigger opening slots by now they're opening for iron maiden and for aerosmith uh, and I think we talked about it in the Aerosmith episode that it was on this tour that Steven Tyler did not appreciate that their opening act was getting a bigger reaction than them. Uh -huh. And Aerosmith's then manager said, by the end of the tour, Guns N' Roses were huge. They basically exploded. We were pissed that Rolling Stone would show up to do a, a story on Aerosmith, but then decided that Guns N' Roses would be on the cover of the magazine. Suddenly the opening act was bigger than we were. Which kind of hurts to a legacy band like Aerosmith. Oh, yeah, totally. During the first of their four October 1989 dates, opening for Rolling Stones in the L.A. Coliseum, Rose at Raxel just, like, was done with the band shit and said, you know what? If all of our members of our band don't stop dancing Mr. Brownstone, which is a reference to their song about heroin, this is going to be our last fucking show. Like, he put them on black. He was also doing heroin. But I think I was about <laughs> to say, I'm like, mm. but um, why? Why be him? Be the voice of that in front of everybody in front of a stadium crowd at the L.A. Coliseum. He says, uh, this is going to be our group's last show if we don't stop doing heroin. Oh, jeez. And reflecting on it, he said, you know, that was pretty serious. I'm not going to be a part of watching them kill each other. Just just killing themselves off. Everyone was pissed at me, but afterward, Slash's mom came and she shook my hand, and so did his brothers. Oh. So all of these instances on tours dubbed Guns N' Roses the most dangerous band in the world. No, no shit. But wait, there's more. 
It doesn't stop here. It does not stop here. So in 1990, Guns N' Roses returned to the studio to finish their next album. Steven Adler was briefly fired for his drug use, but they reinstated him after. (laughs) I love that he keeps coming in and out, in and out. (laughs) He's just there. They let him back in after he signs a contract where he vows to stop taking drugs. Guess what? It didn't work. Yeah, I was about to say, I bet you that didn't work. Uh, During the recording session of Civil War, Steven Adler was so strung out on cocaine and heroin that he caused the band to do nearly 30 takes of this one song. He claimed that at the time he was sick from taking the opiate blockers that they gave him to help with the addictions. Um, and But they fired him anyway, like permanent, permanently on July 11th, 1990. Um, he later sued the band for doing so. They did fill his open position with another drummer. His name's Matt Sorum, who briefly played for the cult. And Slash was like, this man, Matt, he is responsible for the band staying together. Because if we didn't have him, we yeah. would not be a band. And then before they started these recording sessions, they actually added a sixth member of the band, keyboardist Dizzy Reed. Um, so now they're a six-piece with a keyboard. They had so many recordings from these sessions that they ended up releasing two albums at the same time, Use Your Illusion 1 and Use Your Illusion 2. Both came out on September 17th, 1991, and everyone was like, "That's why are you releasing two albums at the same time? That's weird. That's weird. Well, joke backfired on the naysayers because these albums debuted at number two and number one, making Guns N' Roses the only act to achieve like simultaneously holding one and two until Nelly did the same thing in 2004. Oh, that's crazy. Also, wouldn't have expected Nelly to be the one to, to break it. To break it. These albums sold 770,000 units for Use Your Illusion 2 and about the same, slightly less, for Use Your Illusion 1 and spent 108 weeks on the charts, which is a very long time. That's a long time. It's over two years. The video for Estranged is one of the most expensive music videos ever made. Fun fact. The Ballad November Rain hit number three in the U.S., and became the most requested video on MTV, and eventually won the 1992 MTV Music Video Awards for Best Cinematography. Now, this is exciting, A, because ballad ballads don't normally do that well. Yeah. But because at 8 minutes and 57 seconds, it's also the longest, or at the time, was the longest song in U.S. chart history to re- reach the top 10. 8 minutes and 57 seconds. That's a long song. It is a very long song. During the MTV Awards, they performed this song on TV with Elton John accompanying them on piano. Oh, well, that's nice. Which is actually, Elton John is Axl Rose's childhood hero. Aw. Cute moment. Before the release of the albums, though, they go on yet another tour, because this is all this band does. They go on a 28-month-long Use Your Illusion tour, which I actually have a tank top on from this tour. Not from this tour. It's definitely a reprint. But yeah, um, and this tour became su- famous for both its super strong financial success and the many batshit crazy incidents that occurred at these shows. This tour covered 192 dates in 27 countries with over 7 million people attending. It's considered the longest tour in rock history. And let me tell you about some of the batshit stuff that happened. Tell me about the batshit crazy shit. Let me tell you about the batshit crazy. So, on July 2nd, 1991, they're at the Riverport Amphitheater in Maryland Heights, Missouri. 
and Axel discovered that a fan was filming the show with a camera. So he asked venue security, take the camera away. And they didn't. So he jumps in the audience, oh, confronts the fan, and assaults him. After being pulled from the audience by a member of the crew, Axel said, well, thanks to the lame-ass security, I'm going home, and then threw his microphone to the ground and stormed off the stage. In return, the crown ri- crowd rioted, dozens of people were hurt, but the police were unable to arrest Axel Rose until almost a year later because almost immediately the band went overseas to continue uh, the tour. Uh, and they did not forget. They're like, should we uh, should we just, you know, let this nope. one slide? Nope. We're going to wait till he gets back. Charges were filed against him, but a judge ultimately did rule that he did not directly incite the riot, which is fair. Like, it was just yeah. a reaction to what happened. In his defense, Axel stated that Guns N' Roses' security team had made four separate requests to the venue security staff to remove this camera, but the venue staff ignored it, and so um, Axel just took manners into his own hands. Other members of the band reported that they were being hit by bottles launched in the audience and that the security staff refused to enforce a drinking limit. Axel was found guilty of property damage and assault and was fined $50,000 and given two years probation, which honestly worth it <clears throat> like i said he's an idiot but he's a brave idiot yes izzy stradlin abruptly just quit the band on november 7th 1991 after a repeat of this incident basically happened again at a concert in germany like um when asked why he left izzy said it was a combo of axel's personal behavior mismanagement of the band he, he had difficulty being around slash um the drummer whose name I first name I can't remember and Duff due to his newfound sobriety. They were very, very, very much not sober. Right. And Izzy said, once I quit the drugs, I just couldn't help looking around asking myself, is this all there is? And I was tired of it. I needed to get out. Luckily he quit like during a little bit of an off period because the band had three weeks to find a replacement and they settled on Los Angeles guitarist Gilby Clark which Slash once again credits for saving the band. In 1992, the band performed three songs at the Freddie Mercury tribute concert. Uh, let us not forget, people didn't think this was a good fit because of his controver- uh, Axel's controversial statements yeah. in the song One in a Million. Activist group ACT UP demanded that the band be dropped from the bill, while other artists urged that uh, like they should shun Guns N' Roses from this event. And urged, like, other artists were encouraging attendees of this benefit concert to boo Guns N' Roses when they came on stage. Which is kind of shitty, but also understandable. Yeah. Members of Queen were like, bro, we chose them. Get over it. Brian May actually stated, people seem so blind. Don't they realize that the mere fact Guns N' Roses are here is the biggest statement that you could get? Like, the Axel, I think, did feel sorry yeah. a little bit for what he said. Uh, you should go watch their Freddie Mercury performance because it's really good. Anyway, when the band comes back to the U.S. after Axel got arrested, uh, he asked, Axel asked Nirvana if they would open for them, but Kurt Cobain declined. I was about, <laughs> yeah. I, we covered this in the Nirvana yes. episode. Uh, rightfully so. Good choice, Mr. Cobain. Later that year, Guns N' Roses embarked on a Guns N' Roses slash Metallica stadium tour with Metallica, which was supported by Faith No More, Motorhead, and Body Count. We also talked about this. Yes. 
Uh, Did we talk about this? I don't remember. During a show in August 1992 in Montreal, Metallica's lead singer, James Hetfield, suffered second-degree burns to his hands and face after malfunction with pyrotechnics. Metallica was forced to cancel the second hour of the show, but promised to return to Montreal later for another performance. There's a long delay during which the audience becomes increasingly restless, and so Guns N' Roses took the stage. But because there was not enough time for the changeover to happen, um, no one turned on the stage monitors, so the band couldn't hear themselves. And so Rose was like, eh, my throat hurts. We're just going to call it early because he couldn't hear himself. And so the audience rioted and 10 audience members got hurt and the police had to arrest more than a dozen people related to this incident. All because some fireworks blew up. Ultimately, the Use Your Illusion tour ended in Buenos Aires on July 17th, 1993. The Buenos Aires show also marked the last time that their current drummer and current rhythm guitarist would play with the band and would be the last time that Slash performed with the band until 2006. Initially, the band planned to release an EP of covers in late 92 or early 93, but decided to record a full album instead. So their fifth studio album, The Spaghetti Incident? Question mark? That's how it's spelled. Is a collection of punk and glam rock covers and was released in November of 1993. Fun fact, the album includes a hidden track, a cover of Look at Your Game Girl, which is originally by cult leader Charles Manson. Holy shit. This track was kept a secret and left off the advanced tapes that they sent to reviewers because they were worried that this song would cause controversy. I wonder why. Guess what happened? This song calls controversy. (laughs) (laughs) No shit. Law enforcement and victims' rights groups were outraged. Axel said, well, we wanted to downplay it. We don't give any credit to Charles Manson on the album. Uh, David Geffen had to come and comment and say, you know, if Axel realized how offensive people would have found this, he would have never recorded the song. He probably still would have, but whatever. I just love that they're like, but we didn't credit Charles Manson, so, so it's, it's fine. fine. <laughs> like, <laughs> I'm going to cover a Kanye song, but not cover Kanye, so it's fine. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Geffen Records kind of solved this problem by just donating a large portion of the royalties of this album to the Doris Tate, Cr- Doris Tate Crime Victims Bureau, which is a survivor fund for the, the Manson murders. Um. It's also worth noting that around this time, pretty much every single band member that's still in the band had had a near-death experience with drugs and realized, maybe we shouldn't do this anymore. We should, we should lay off the drugs. Slash overdosed at least twice that I know of, that he remembers. Like he, he literally died at one point and came oh, back. Geez. So between 94 and 1996, the band goes in and out of the studio they're recording they're not they're putting stuff down they're not liking it like just a lot of nothing is happening they do release a cover of rolling stones sympathy for the devil in 1994 for the film interview with a vampire and um it doesn't get good reviews it says it's a note for note remake but it seems utterly bankrupt And this will be the last track to feature Slash for a very, very long time. Because for the creation of this song, for some reason, Axel invites his childhood friend, Paul Huge Tobias, 
Don't know why his nickname is huge. We're going to roll with it to play rhythm guitar on the song. Tobias being there really creates tension in the band. Slash had creative differences with him. And in a 2001 interview, Slash told his told the interviewer that he was either going to he got to a point where he had to confront it and gave Axel the ultimatum, either Paul goes or I go. Uh, Duff McKagan's quoted as saying the music was going in a direction that was completely indulgent to huge I hate that name I can't even say that straight face I also don't like that sentence in general <laughs> that is completely indulgent to huge uh, and another factor is that this guy Axel brought in and told us this is our new guitar player there was no democracy there and that's when Slash really started going fuck this well this is his band now or something it was ridiculous I'd go down there to start rehearsal at 10 p.m. And then Axel would show up at four or five in the morning. And that kind of thing was going on for a couple of years. So Slash quits. um, Duff quits. And then Gilby Clark, who was filling in for someone else who quit, quits. Because his contract was up for renewal. And he was like, I ain't staying with this shit show. So he left. So in August of 1995, Axel legally leaves the band and creates a new partnership under the band's name. He later says, like, yeah, I did this to salvage Guns N' Roses, not to steal it. He Uh did it to steal it. Slash claimed that he and his bandmates signed over the name under duress. There was one night on the Use Your Illusion tour in 1992 where Axel refused to go on stage until the others signed over the name rights to the band. And he said, unfortunately, we signed it because he wouldn't go on stage otherwise. And we had a show to do. And Axel says, oh, no, that never happened. That That's made up. Yeah, right. Psst. Says the man. <coughs> so. <laughs> says the man who, insert. Uh, I think it's it's five against one, sir. But okay, go off. So, like I said, when they come to record Sympathy for the Devil, all of this kind of comes to a head and the band explodes. Axel sends a fax because it's the 90s, notifying MTV of the departure of Slash and Slash responded saying, Axel and I have not been capable of seeing eye to eye on Guns N' Roses for some time. We try to collaborate, but at this point, I'm no longer in the band. Axel's whole visionary style, as far as his input in Guns N' Roses, is completely different from mine. I just like to play guitar, write a good riff, go out there and, pre- go out there and play, as opposed to presenting an image. And then Duff McKagan does the same thing. He resigns in August of 1997, saying Guns had been paying rent on studios for three years now, from 1994 to 1997, but still did not have a single song. The whole operation was so erratic that it didn't seem to fit with my hopes for parenthood. Which is sweet. Um, And I'm not even going to pretend to go through all the replacements and lineup changes they have. If they're important, we'll talk about them when we get there. So... This new Guns N' Roses, which is Axel and some other dudes, goes into the studio. It is now 1998. Their last album came out in 1993. Yeah, that's a while. So by nine, August of 99, the band has recorded over 30 songs for this album, which they were kind of working under the title 2000 Intentions, because it's about to be the new millennium. In November of 99... Axel's being interviewed for MTV and he says that he actually re-recorded Appetite for Destruction with his new band because (laughs) he liked them better, basically. Um, 
and added two new songs or replaced patience with you could be mine so he added one new song and then he was like oh and actually the the title is not 2000 intentions anymore it's chinese democracy oh my god this man does not learn. He says, there's a lot of Chinese democracy movements, and it's something that there's a lot of talk about. Something that I know it'll be nice to see. It could just be like an ironic statement. I don't know. I just like the sound of it. Which is basically Axel saying nothing. So several months several months later, the producers convinced Axel Rose that um, Chinese democracy is not ready, so you need to re-record it. So they started completely over. They scrapped 30 songs. Jeez. And there's still not an album. In early 2000, he's he give, he he's in an interview, and he's like, "Yeah, we actually had to delay this album because technology is changing, and I'm educating myself about the new technology that's coming to rock music. So it's like starting from scratch. I'm learning how to work with something, and just not want it to sound like something I did on a computer. Uh huh. Whatever." In the same interview, he's asked why he continues to use the Guns N' Roses name instead of coming up with something or calling it like an Axl Rose solo project. And he says, there were other people in Guns N' Roses before the others, you know. I contemplated letting go of that, but it doesn't feel right in any way. I'm not the person who tries to kill it or walk away. Everyone's putting in something they've got into signing and building. Maybe I'm just helping to steer it to what it should be built like. He just keeps coming up with excuse after yeah. excuse after excuse. Basically, for 10 years, Axel just says a bunch of bullshit. So, it's now been eight years since Guns N' Roses last played together. Like, in any form. New or old or anybody. And this new f- lineup makes a public appearance in January 2001 and plays two very well-received concerts. One in Las Vegas and one at Rock in Rio in Rio de Janeiro. The band played some older songs and then some unreleased songs from the upcoming Chinese Democracy. And for no reason at all, during the set in Rock and Rio, Axel gets up on stage and goes, I know that many of you are disappointed that some of the people you came to know and love could not be here with us today. Regardless of what you've heard or read, people worked very hard, meaning my former friends, to do everything that they could to, so that I could not so that I could not be here today. I'm as hurt as disappointed as you, and that unlike Oasis, we cannot find a way to get along. <laughs> so he just throws these dudes under the bus when no one asks him to. Yeah, like everyone everyone is over it except Axel at this point. Right. They played two more shows later that year in Las Vegas, and Slash actually tried to go to one to see what was going on, and security wouldn't let him in. He was, like, blacklisted to not be let into the venue because Axel's that petty. In November 2002, the band goes on their first North American tour since 1993, so it's been almost 10 years. And um, that, that does not get off to a good start because at the opening show in Vancouver, Axel just doesn't show up. So the, the show has to get canceled. A riot ensues. Uh, they continue to try to make the tour happen, but the exact same thing happens when they get to Philadelphia. Axel doesn't show up. Philly being Philly riots. I'm sure yeah. they're climbing the street poles because they're not greasing them yet. Um, and so Clear Channel Radio was the, the promoter of the tour. And they said, uh-uh, we are not playing this game. Your tour is canceled. Fast forward to February 2004. Geffen Records says, are y'all going to make this fucking album or not? You have exceeded your budget. It's cost me millions of dollars. Um, Axel's now funding it by himself. I'm not giving you any more money. 
if you want to finish this album. So you Chinese will, democracy hasn't even No, it has still not happened. So it, it, they started in 98. 94. 94. It's now 2004. So 10 years to make this been, one fucking album. Oh, no. Sorry. You were right. 98. This album I wrote. Still. That's right, folks. Album is not out after five years. So March 2004, the album funding becomes Axel's responsibility. In 2005, New York Times runs a report, because everyone's invested in this drama, that Axel Rose has allegedly spent $13 million, Holy which shit. is $18 million today, in the studio by that point. He still had delivered nothing, not a single, not a demo track, nothing. Um, and so in March 2004, since Axel had failed to deliver a new studio album in about 10 years, Geffen was like, we got to make some fucking money. So they just released a Guns N' Roses Greatest Hits collection. Yeah. As they, sh- you know, normally I shit on Greatest Hits. They deserved some money back at this point. Right. At the same time, Slash and Duff um actually joined forces with Axel in a little in a little bit of a peace treaty moment to sue Geffen to stop releasing this greatest hits because it was just all kinds of crazy legal because this it wasn't compiled with any input from anyone in the band Axel slash dude who was in the band for five minutes like Geffen just went rogue and we're like we're gonna compile this the way we see fit and release it and so there was a momentary peace treaty where they have three of them united against a common enemy <laughs> that was Geffen. The lawsuit didn't go anywhere. Geffen released the album. It went triple platinum. Wow. <laughs> and went on to be the third longest charting album in the Nielsen area. Nielsen era. Uh, also, I just need to point out that at this time, so late 2004, the lead guitarist is Buckethead. That's exactly what you're picturing. It is a dude with a bucket on his head. I think I've heard of him. Buckethead. He leaves the band. I don't. He wasn't there very long, because he joined the band to make an album or tour. And then they're not doing either of those things, and so he go kind of goes off on a little bit of a public rant against Axel about like, why did I join this band and waste my time if you're not going to do anything with it? Right. So let's for fast forward three more years. It's now 2007. Eddie Trunk on his show reports that the album is done. And hand it over to Geffen Records, but it's being delayed once again due to issues with the label. So, a year later, in March 2008, Dr. Pepper, the drink, announces a plan to give everyone in America, except for former guitarist Slash and Buckethead, <laughs> a free can of Dr. Pepper if the band releases Chinese Democracy before the end of 2008. I love that. The clock is ticking. They have nine months to release this album or everyone in the country gets a free Dr. Pepper. Gets a free Dr. Pepper. Axel says he was surprised and very happy about the announcement um, and said, as some of Buckethead's performances are on the album, I'll share my Dr. Pepper with him. (laughs) (laughs) So on October 22nd, 2008, after several months of speculation, band management, Best Buy and Interscope, Geffen and A&M issue a joint press release confirming the much anticipated release of Chinese Democracy, which was scheduled for November 23rd, 2008, as a Best Buy exclusive because it's 2008. Chinese Democracy, the band's sixth studio album and its first since 1993's The Spaghetti Incident was released. 
And you've got to understand that at the time between these two albums, I went from being a seven-month-old baby to being a sophomore in high school. <laughs> we we lived the decade. We lived this drama. Yeah. I grew up in this entire time period. It took them to release one album. Um, When the album did finally drop, it had two very opposing viewpoints. It actually wound up on a lot of year-end best lists but also went up on a lot of year-end worst lists and you might be asking yourself so what were slash duff and matt sorum doing at this time just forming supergroup velvet revolver with dave kushner and ah, scott Velvet Weiland. revolver is good but that's a story for another time because we don't have time today so the album is finally out many years later on February 6, 2009, Axel gave his first interview in nine years when he sat down with Billboard Magazine's Jonathan Cohen. He basically said that either he or Slash were going to die before they got to work together again, but he would be open to working with Izzy or Duff. In 2009, um, they it was reported that Axel's manager was fired, then rehired, then fired, because that's news. But this is just more Axel drama because he he blamed the failure, quote unquote, of Chinese democracy on his management and said that because his management didn't do anything to promote the album, that's why they couldn't earn their money back. No, Axel, the reason you didn't earn your money back is because it took you 14 years to make the fucking album. Yeah, surely it couldn't be you. You spent like $20 million. <clears throat> so because Axel is open to working with anyone but Slash... Duff does join the band on stage for the first time since leaving the band in on October 14, 2010 at the O2, London, O2 Arena in London. He performed four songs to them, and it was kind of said to be a spur-of-the-moment decision. Like, he and Axel just happened to be staying at the same hotel in London, and Axel said that he, he told the audience that night, there was this guy at the end of my hallway playing loud music and shit, and I said, what the fuck? Oh, it's Duff! And he just invited Duff to play on stage with them. That's nice. In 2011, it was announced that the classic Guns N' Roses lineup was going to be inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, along with um, a bunch of other people, obviously, including Red Hot Chili Peppers at that same ceremony. That's December 2011. April 2012, Axel releases an open letter to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame Guns N' Roses fans, and whom it may concern, saying he would not be attending the induction. He said, I respectfully decline my induction as a member of Guns N' Roses to the Rock Hall of Fame, calling it a, quote, complicated and awkward situation. He really does not like Slash. No! For d- n- just get over it! Like, So in April of that year, Slash, Duff, Stephen, Matt, and Gilby Clark all show up to their ceremony at r- the Rock Hall of Fame, they end up performing Mr. Brownstone, Sweet Child of Mine, and Paradise City with Alter Bridge and Slash's band vocalist Miles Kennedy filling in for Axl Rose, which, side note, Miles and Slash collaborate a lot. Miles has an amazing voice as well. During the ceremony, while the ceremony is happening, Axl Rose is over here up updating the band's Facebook status to apologize to the city of Cleveland and listing out the reasons he did not attend. <laughs> this this dude is having like temper tantrums. That's the only way I can describe it. He is a big child. Again, he probably would have benefited from going to therapy. So December 29th, 2015. 
Several days after a Guns N' Roses released teaser theater was released to movie theaters, Billboard reports that Slash is rejoining the band and a reunited lineup will headline Coachella 2016. Everyone's like, Bullshit. what? What? So Axel um, was set to appear on Jimmy Kimmel the next week to talk about it, but his appearance was canceled due to, quote, unforeseen circumstances, probably because he was a scary little bitch, but whatever. <laughs> Guns N' Roses was officially announced as the headliner of Coachella on January 4th, 2016, with KROQ reporting that Slash and Duff were rejoining the band. Now, if you're wondering, what caused Axel over My Dead Body Rose and Slash to get back together? I have the answer for you. Slash once did a Reddit AMA where he answered this exact question. And his answer was, the catalyst that led to me and Axel bearing our hatchet was just the two of us talking for the first time in 20 years. Oh, that will do it. They just... They realized it was stupid. Talked it out like adults. And what do you know? It solved 20 years of bickering. Just like that. Hey, man, I didn't like that. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm solved. over it now. <laughs> Am I the drama? On March 25th, 2016, they announced the Not In This Lifetime tour, which is a reference to the 2012 interview in which Axel was asked about if a reunion would happen, and he said, Not In This Lifetime, which is cute. By the end of the tour in 2018, the tour had grossed $563.3 million, making it the second highest grossing tour behind U2's 360 Degrees tour. Um, skipping, you know, ahead to today, they've continued to tour. They are still on tour. Ticket prices are absolutely batshit insane. Ticketmaster, you got to fix that shit because I want to go. But I'm not paying $300 for a back of the stadium seat. Yeah. Fuck that. In August 2021, they debuted a new stage on stage at Fenway Park um, and released the new single Absurd, which was their first new material since 2008. So once again, I went from being a high school sophomore to being 29 <laughs> in the time <laughs> they release stuff. <laughs> they take their time. That September, they also released another single called Hard School. And I'll say it's new material, but it's not new, new material. Because it's just reworkings of some of the shit they got thrown out during the Chinese democracy era. Well, they had 30 songs, so. Well, they're, they're going to keep going. Because later in 21, Slash announced that the band has been reworking those Chinese democracy era songs for future release um and then like two months ago he confirmed that the band was still working on new songs and there's new guns material coming out as we speak oh there should be two or more singles released by june well so that's like, nice any day now we could just i mean take that with a grain of salt because remember the album was coming out for 14 years we'll be 40 don't worry so what is the legacy of Guns N' Roses? Guns N' Roses has influenced many modern rock bands such as Fall Out Boy, Avenged Sevenfold, Mother Love Bone, Buck Cherry, Hinder, Manic Street Preachers, Nickelback, Bullet For My Valentine, Fozzy, The Strokes, and Black Label Society. Um, Appetite for Destruction is considered one of the most influential and critically acclaimed albums of all time. It's credited with changing hard rock sensibilities at the time and basically led to the decline of late 80s glam metal. It was kind of that bridge between glam to grunge. Uh. Um, Appetite for Destruction is ranked the 62nd greatest album of all time in Rolling Stone's 500 greatest of albums of all time. One day we'll get there. Several of the band's members are considered to be the best in their respective field. 
Axl Rose has been called one of the best vocalists of all time. Slash is consistently ranked as one of the best guitar players of all time. Duff McKagan is hailed as one of the best bass players in rock by everyone from Rolling Stone to Time to Guitar World. And Izzy Stradlin has been named one of the best rhythm guitarists. And Steven Adler is ranked 98th greatest drummer of all time. Which, you know, for someone who who flaked out on Slash for being the first Quite a few band, times. Uh, it's pretty good. So that is Guns N' Roses. And that is the fly-by Guns N' Roses version. Damn. Thank you for listening. You can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Good Pods. Special thanks to Death of Fawn for our intro riff. You can visit our website at shearocky.com. There you'll find information on our socials, show notes, contact us, and our merch. Other than that, don't do drugs. Don't do drugs.